Good to see everybody this morning. My name is Daniel. I am one of the pastors here at Aletheia Church. Uh, I'm going to step out on a limb here in a second and offer you scripture journals, hoping they came in this week. Did they, in fact, come in this week? They did not come in this week. All right, so that's two weeks in a row we have let you down, and I am so sorry. But Jesus will never let you down, so please take encouragement in that. All right? It's one of life lessons. People are going to let you down. Jesus won't. All right. Next week, we will have scripture journals, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, right? All right, so uh, we'll be in Acts chapter 9 as our main text today, but the title of today's message is The Most Unlikely One. Now, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that we are in the middle of something called the One Campaign. As we are going through the book of Acts, which we've titled Go and Tell, we have encouraged each and every one of you to identify who you think is that specific one right in front of you that God is wanting you to invest in, hoping that they would become a follower of Jesus. So if you don't yet have your one, we would encourage you to identify your one, write down that name on some kind of card, put it somewhere so that you are constantly remembering to pray for and engage with your one. Now, for you who have been with us for the last two semesters as we've been emphasizing this subject and continually encouraging you to engage with your one, my, my question for you is this, as this has gone over some length of time, is do you really believe in the power of God to save your one? Are you confident beyond the shadow of any doubt that God's love will ultimately conquer their heart and you will see them completely surrender their life to the Lordship of Jesus? Or are you like me sometimes and you have great doubts because you see too many obstacles in the way of that person surrendering their life to Jesus? Some of the potential obstacles out there is maybe they're an atheist. Maybe they tell you on a regular basis just how much they don't believe in this God that you have surrendered your life to. Maybe they are from a different faith background and you just know that it would just be too hard for them to walk away from everything they've been taught in order to embrace Jesus. Maybe your one just doesn't care. As much as you care about Jesus, they just don't care in the slightest about engaging with him in any way, shape, or form. Maybe your one is just too concerned with partying. Maybe they're too focused on school. And maybe the most difficult one of all is the one who already thinks they're a Christian, but you can tell by the fruit of the li their lives they're not. And so as you've been trying to engage with your one, as you've been praying for your one, as you've been trying to think of ways that, that you could reach your one, you just see all of these obstacles in their life, and yet you have forgotten the power of God to conquer any obstacle at any time because he is the sovereign of the universe. I know this struggle well. My, my one for the last year has been a man from Saudi Arabia. 
He just graduated with his PhD in the sciences. He is a secular Muslim. I see all the obstacles in the way of him becoming a follower of Jesus. And sometimes those obstacles can become bigger than Jesus in my mind. And today's sermon, today's passage is an encouragement to us to see the obstacles in the way of our one for what they are obstacles, but to realize that Jesus' power is greater than any obstacle that stands in the way of our one becoming a follower of Jesus. Because today we're not going to talk about your one or my one. Today we're going to talk about the most unlikely one, Saul of Tarsus. Now, many of you know about this guy named Paul in the Bible. But before he became known as Paul the Apostle, he was known as Saul of Tarsus. I'm just going to go ahead and apologize to you because I may use Saul and Paul interchangeably because I'm so used to talking about the guy named Paul. But today I want to reference him as Saul. But if I start talking about Paul and you say, hey, you should be talking about Saul, I'm talking about the same guy, all right? So just, just forgive me, all right? But Saul of Tarsus, we're going to do a brief biographical sketch about this man because you may not know anything about his life. You may not be familiar with who he is, but I'm going to help you out today. So Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus is a city in Asia Minor. And if you look up here on the screen, you can see it on the about midway up on the right side. This is on the border of what is today Syria and Turkey. It is actually right inside of Turkey. This is where Saul is from. By birth, this makes Saul a Hellenistic Jew. So he's a Jew, but what makes him Hellenistic is that he was born outside of Israel. So he was born in the Greek Roman Empire, and that makes him a Hellenistic Jew by birth. By citizenship, he is a Roman citizen, giving him great privilege in this time. By education, he is a Greek. If you've done any study of ancient history, you know that Alexandria and Athens were the two great universities of the day. Tarsus actually had the third great university. If you're going to draw a modern parallel, you would kind of say Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. Sorry if any of you got your undergrad at Princeton, all right? But that's just kind of how we think of them in our minds. That's where Tarsus would have ranked, but yet a very high center of learning. By trade, he would be a tent maker. Now you're going, well, man, you don't have to have a lot of education to be a tent maker. But you have to remember, this is how people survived back in the day. They did work with their hands. So his family would take uh, black goat hair, most likely, weave it together, and would make tents. Most people dwelt in tents back in the day as they were nomadic, moving from place to place. So Paul had a ver- Saul had a very respected trade as a tent maker. By conviction, he was a Pharisee. Now, what we know is that Saul goes from Tarsus 
And when he's bar mitzvahed at about the age of at the age of 13, he goes down to Jerusalem to study with the premier rabbi of his day, a guy named Gamaliel or Gamaliel, depending on how you want to say it, where you're from. Again, the rule with uh, saying any word or name in the Bible you're not familiar with is you just say it confidently and nobody else will know that you don't know what you're saying, right? Or it's the wrong pronunciation. That's the number one rule. So he is being taught by a guy named Gamaliel, and this guy was known as the beauty of the law. Now, if you're wondering what the law is, the law is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Within those five books, there are 613 commandments that scholars have pulled out of there, the greatest being the Ten Commandments. Well, this guy, Gamaliel, was the beauty of the law, which means there is no one who knew more about the law and was wiser at explaining the law and instructing people and the people of God than this guy. He was the premier instructor of his day, and he was Paul's personal trainer and teacher in the ways of Jewish righteousness, in the way to please God in the way to do everything that had been instructed of them. And not just the law itself, but also the extra law they had put around the law. So much of the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees was not so much the law itself, but how they had interpreted the law and built what we call a fence around the law to add all these extra burdens on people. And so this guy knew them all backwards and forwards. Everyone wanted to learn from this guy. Now, if you're saying, hey, this is some great information, but your information is not quite complete, Daniel, let me go ahead and help you out. On the Myers-Briggs, he was an ENTJ, all right? (laughs) And on the Enneagram, he was a one-wing two, okay? So if you need this information to help you out and complete this biographical sketch, we pretty much agree he was an ENTJ, a one-wing two. If you want to debate that, we can do that after the message, okay? So this is basically (laughs) all I can tell you about this guy named Saul of Tarsus. Except I'll add one more thing. He is currently the leader trying to eradicate Christianity off the face of the earth. Of all the people who are doing their best to stop this movement that has taken place since Jesus has ascended into heaven, since the Holy Spirit has come down at Pentecost, and the church is on the move, and the Holy Spirit is doing an amazing thing through the the lives of hearts and, and people, this guy is at the forefront of trying to eradicate Christianity. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, we've already seen him show up at the end of Acts chapter 7 and the beginning of Acts chapter 8. So let's read that together just to know where we're coming from at the stoning of Stephen and Saul's presence there. So in Acts chapter 7, verse 54, it says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him, meaning Stephen, but he full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So here we have Saul as the lead guy out on the street like the Gestapo going and pulling people out of their house, giving permission by the religious authorities to find and to hunt down anyone who is a part of something called the way. They initially referred to Christians, not as Christians, but as the way. And so they are hunting them down, pulling them out of their houses, robbing them of their possessions and goods, either imprisoning them or stoning them to death. And it is that point that we pick up this story just over on the other side of chapter 9 where we enter into today's text. In chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul is still rampaging here. The, 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 the picture here is he's still breathing threats. The, the image that comes to mind is one of, if you've seen a, a movie where men are on their horses about to go into battle, they always kind of show that picture of the horses kind of breathing in and out, and that's what it is. It's kind of that, that snort and that snuffle that war horses get before they go into the battle to attack the enemy. Saul is rampaging. He is breathing in. And he is trying to, again, eradicate Christianity. He goes to the high priest. So he has permission from the greatest authority in the Jewish land to carry out, not just going into people's homes, but going into places of worship. Now, church, let me say this to you. I want you to, to notice what's going on here in the church. They know that Someone is trying to eradicate them. They know there is a great enemy of the church. Does this stop them in any way, shape, or form of speaking up for the name of Jesus in the midst of opposition? Every head should be going, no, Daniel. That does not stop them. Why? Because they knew that people needed Jesus. And they weren't waiting on people just to come to them. They were going to those people. They were going to those people in their house of worship, into their synagogues where they were gathering. 
And apparently, it had made it to Paul's ears. They did not like the fact that these followers of the way were going into these Jewish houses of worship and proclaiming the name of Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, even at the threat of having their possessions stolen, even at the threat of having being imprisoned, of being put to death, it does not stop them in any way, shape, or form in proclaiming the name of Jesus to those who need to know him. And while he is on this road to Damascus, and you can see Damascus up on our map once again, it's just above Jerusalem, almost on the way to Tarsus. It's about a six-day journey by foot from Jerusalem to Damascus. On this road, on this path, as, Paul is go, as Saul is going northward, it says in verse 3, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. In his retelling of this story twice, once in Acts 22 and once in Acts 26 to the governing authorities in Rome, Paul in chapter 26, 13 says, the light that appeared was brighter than the sun. And I want to dwell on this just for a moment. We, being in Florida, are very familiar with this gaseous orb that puts off heat and light that's 93 million miles away. Does that ever astonish you that the sun is 93 million miles away, yet it provides the warmth that we need for life to exist on this planet? That is always just an amazing thing to me, that something so far away can give life and also give warmth and provide light so that we can see. Yet Paul states throughout his life, Saul states throughout his life, Paul states throughout his life, when Jesus showed up, he was brighter than the sun. There are times where we try to imagine the glory of God. We try to, to get into our minds, who is this glorious being that we worship? How much glory was contained within the flesh of Jesus Christ himself? Saul says it was brighter than the sun. It gives new meaning and I think new thought to that day at the end of Revelation when John is writing from the island of Patmos and he says, on that day, when there is a new heaven and new earth, there will be no need of the sun anymore because the glory of God will fill the earth with its light. Have you ever tried to stare into the sun? How long did you make it? Not very long. And yet there exists a light brighter. And it is the glory of Christ. And one day, you and I who are followers of the King will be given eyes to look directly into that glory. May we never take for granted the privilege that is ours and that will be ours when we forever get to look upon the face of the King. 
Because with regular human eyes, Saul is immediately blinded because there was a light brighter than the sun that had shone upon his face. In verse 4 it says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Point number one from this verse. Look how easily the greatest enemy of Christianity is brought to his knees in an instant. In the light of the king's face, in the light of Jesus, the greatest enemy of Christianity is laid waste immediately on his face. Secondly, notice the connection of Jesus to his church. Does Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No. Does he say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? No. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now what we can take from that is look at how closely Jesus aligns himself to us. If you ever wonder how much Jesus likes you or loves you or cares for you or identifies himself with you, let this be one of the key foundational verses for you to go back to to remind yourself that when Saul is persecuting the followers of Jesus. Jesus so closely identifies himself with those people that he says, why are you persecuting me? Because who are we? Who is the me? It is the body of Christ. When the Bible says that Jesus is the head of the church and that we are his body, it means it literally it is not just some figurative thing out there. We can speak of, it, speak of it in figurative ways. But it is so literal and so close to the heart of Jesus. You are so close to the heart of Jesus that when someone comes against you or when he thinks about you, he identifies you as me. You are that closely interrelated and connected to the life of Jesus. So if you are in here and you are struggling in any way, shape, or form today with your identity in Christ and your connection to Him and how much He loves you and cares for you as a follower of Jesus, let this verse be a guiding light to eradicate all of those thoughts because Jesus is closer to you and identifies Himself with you more than you could ever imagine. To this response, to this question, Jesus asks him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? An amazing confession for what we have just seen from this man. And he said, I am Jesus, 
whom you are persecuting. Once again, he re-emphasizes the fact that it's not the church you are persecuting, it is me you are persecuting, Saul. And immediately he is given instructions on what to do. And immediately he is going to obey. This is every parent's dream right here. You tell your children something and they do it immediately without question. Maybe it takes blinding them to get them to do it. I don't know. Not going to try it. Someone else can and tell me how it works out. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate or drank. Now, I I want you to think about this moment in its biggest scope of human history. Because if you've been a part of the church, if you're familiar with the story, you just kind of breeze on by it. You walk on by like, yeah, 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 I've heard about this thing, this Saul of Tarsus thing, okay? I've heard about this guy. But but I, I want you to think about it. This moment that we have just encountered... That this moment is one of the greatest moments in all of human history. This is not just some like thing we just pass over. I mean, this is one of the most pivotal moments in all of world history. That this guy, who was the lead persecutor and destroyer of the church, we now know as the Apostle Paul, who becomes the greatest missionary, the greatest theologian, the greatest evangelist, the greatest pastor, the greatest teacher, the greatest leader, the greatest thinker, the greatest statesman, the greatest fighter of justice and lover of the good that the world has ever seen. A complete and total one opposite that was unimaginable to the people who were living there at that time. Entire societies have been built upon the ethics contained and found in this man's 13 letters that he writes to the churches. For many years, Harvard used his letter to the Romans as the greatest shining legal argument ever written by a human mind. For decades, when you went to Harvard and you went to law school, the first thing they sat you down when had you do was read the book of Romans and said, this is the greatest legal argument ever written. If you want to know the law, you read what this man wrote. They may not do that today, but there was, but this man and his letters have affected every fabric in this world. But I want you to think about it now from before his conversion, before him becoming a Christian, that if you would have been part of the early church and you would have known all these stories about this guy named Saul persecuting the church, destroying the church, stoning Stephen, eradicating the church, would it have ever entered into your mind, this guy will one day become the greatest Christian, the most influential Christian the world has ever seen? Not a chance. 
Never would that have entered into your mind or my mind or anyone else's mind. Because let's be honest, if we would have sat down like I did at the beginning of the message and we would have listed out all the obstacles in Saul's life, we would have never seen the potential and the possibility of what God could do through one human being who would completely and totally surrender their life to Jesus Christ. We would have said, no, there's no way. I mean, this guy, he hates the church. He's killing people. He's stoning people. God would never forgive anybody like that. Heck, God, we're not even praying for you to convert him. We're just praying you'd get rid of him. I mean, there's no way he's going to follow Jesus. His entire life would be threatened if he embraced Jesus as being the way, the truth, and the life. His dad spent a lot of money sending him to be under Gamaliel. His family would hate him. Everything that he's embraced his entire life, he would have to give up and go against. All the things he's railed against, all the things he's preached against, he would now have to embrace. No human being would do that. He would lose all of his friends. He would lose all of his future aspirations. He would actually go from being the hunter to being the hunted. And who in the world would do that? There is no way this guy would become a follower of Jesus. He would be utterly humiliated to support what he had so strongly fought against. But yet, in the blink of an eye, with the shining light of the glory of the sun, the greatest enemy of the church becomes the most influential Christian to ever walk the face of the earth. If you ever wonder what the power and capacity of God's power is, it is found in this story and in this moment of human history. For God can change the most wretched of human hearts. And Paul said, I am the foremost of all sinners. God can change the most wretched of human hearts into one that is the most loving, gracious, kind heart the world has ever seen. The most influential heart the world has ever seen. The the heart that has been most influenced by the work of King Jesus. Now in light of all I've said in this passage... I'm going to draw us down with four conclusions that I want us to take with us as we go out of here into our lives. I want you to take it today. I want you to take it tomorrow, this week, this year, this decade, this century. And if some of you happen to make it into 2100s, I want you to take it into there too. All right? Number one. What we see with Saul, you need to know. Every salvation is this sovereign. Now look. I'm going to ruffle your feathers. It's okay. Just hang in there with me. I know there's a lot of discussion in the world among you and everywhere else 
about these concepts called predestination and free will. Points up what some people call Calvinism and Arminianism, what some people call election. Um, I'm not going to get into any of that. And I'm going to use the word sovereign. Okay? This is the main word you need to know. This is the key word you need to know. This is the beginning from which you need to start to dive into this subject about God's sovereignty and salvation. But I'm going to tell you, and I have biblical background, I think you strongly support my case, every salvation is this sovereign. And I want you to listen to Paul's own words in Ephesians chapter 1 that he writes to the church about our standing in state as followers of Jesus. His opening words to the church in Ephesus are this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, followers of Jesus, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, I, I just I, I want to say I, I'm not cherry-picking one text to make my argument. If you read Paul's letters, they are full of these words. They are full of words like chosen, predestined, elected, adopted. Peter's letters contain this same language. Jesus' recorded words contain this language. It, 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 is a, it is interesting to me how much we try to fight against this and explain this away. Well, yeah, I mean, I know it says God foreknew, but it's only because he foreknew what decision I would make. Mm, no. Like before the foundation of the world, he chose you. This gift he, he, he gave to you, it is, it is a gift. He just gave it to you. The faith that you have, he gave to you. You didn't just all of a sudden come up with it. He gave it to you. And let me tell you, this is what makes our salvation crazy. And think about this. And I always find it so funny because Christians fight against this. Like, no, 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 no. God, 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 God didn't pre-choose me. Trust me. It is a totally different thing when you think about before the foundation of the world, God said, you are mine. Before you ever drew breath, before your grandparents had prayed for you, before your parents had thought about having children, the Lord your God said to each and every one of you who are followers of Jesus, 
You are mine. In all of your days, I'm going to love you. In all of your days, I am going to guide you. And when you pass from this earth, no matter what has happened, you will be with me forever and ever and ever. And that is why the writer of Hebrews says, we have this hope as a steadfast anchor for our soul. Why would you not want God to be sovereign over your salvation? Why would you not want to know that God has chosen you? Because when God has chosen you, guess what? You cannot lose your salvation. I don't care what anybody tells you. If they tell you that, they are a liar. Because God has said, you are my child. In the same way that nothing could ever do anything to change the status of my four children to being my children. It doesn't matter. Nothing can change that status for them. They will always be my children. The Lord your God says to you, you are mine. And when you can begin, when you begin to embrace that, it will radically change everything about your relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, once you begin to embrace it, it'll feel just like this. All right? I'm just going to let that sit up there. The guys are going to get this. Like, you're going to feel incredible, awesome, wonderful. How great would it be to be a bear shooting a machine gun, riding a great white shark, and riding a wave? All right? That is what it would feel like once you embrace God's sovereignty. It is like the greatest, most awesome, spectacular feeling in the world. If you need another image, you'll have to search for that yourself. This is the best I could come up with, all right? And I stole it from somebody else, so. Every salvation is this sovereign. After the service, if any of you want to debate this or talk about this, we will gladly have any discussion you would like to have about this. And I understand there's lots of questions that go with it. And there's lots of mental hurdles to jump through. We've all been there. I wasn't raised embracing this or being taught this. But I can tell you it has fundamentally changed my relationship with God knowing I am in this permanent state of his child. Because, because the, the thing about it is, and this, this is what Paul got, and this is what a lady one day said, said to Tim Keller. She said, you know, if salvation is my choice... Then, then my commitment to God and, and what he asked me to do is only as much as my commitment is on my choice. But if it's actually God who saves me, if it's actually God who, who conquers my heart, and I didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it, then the only choice I have is to completely surrender everything I have to him. And honestly, I think that's why so many Christians resisted. I think they put up a lot of other excuses, but I think there's, that's the big block. Because if it's true that God himself saved me apart from myself, in spite of myself, only by his good, sovereign, gracious pleasure, then there's no limit to what he can ask me to do. And I don't want to give up that much control of my life. Because I'm an American 
and I love this thing called individualism, and I want to do things my way, when and how and where I want to do it. If I embrace God's ultimate sovereignty in my salvation, that means my life is not my own. It is completely and totally His. Conclusion number two, not every salvation is this dramatic. All right? If you're like, dude, I did not get a Damascus Road experience, guess what? Nobody else did either. Backing up my first point, the men around Saul, did any of them become believers? Did any of them know what was said to him? Did anyone else see him? They heard a voice, but they don't know what was said. In that moment, Jesus only reveals himself to one. Not every salvation is this dramatic. Listen, if your parents are followers of Jesus, I can, I can promise you this is their prayer, whether you know it or not. Lord Jesus, give my child the most boring testimony on planet Earth. I do not want a homeless, drug addict story come to Jesus. I want them to be in the church, raised in the church, love the church, follow Jesus, live for Jesus, get married, have me at least four or five grandbabies, <laughs> not, not move back into my house, <laughs> and then die having lived a good long life for Jesus. Keep that down the line. All right? That is every parent. You'll get there one day, I promise. So if you're sitting here and thinking, I've got to have a dramatic story. No, you don't. My two oldest, they don't have dramatic stories. It was like, Dad, we know we've sinned. We know we need Jesus. We're ready to follow him. All right, let's get baptized. And that's it. I didn't push it. I didn't make them pray a prayer. Just when it came time, when they were there, and many of you are the same way. So you don't need anything dramatic to make you a follower of Jesus. But you do be like Paul and surrender everything. So salvation is best pictured in a full and complete surrender of yourself to the Lordship of Jesus. And that's what we see immediately in Saul, right? Jesus said, rise, get up, and you'll be told what to do. Paul says, yes, sir. Right? That was it. There was no questioning. It was a full and complete surrender. The evidence of true Christianity begins with the full and complete surrender of your life to Jesus. And then it bears out fruit over the course of your life. Point number three, every salvation has the same intention. What is that intention, Daniel? I'm so glad you asked. If, and we're going to steal from Kevin, Kevin's sermon one verse for next week. Verse 15 of chapter 9, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now, many of you have heard Jesus in Matthew 28, 18-20, that you are to go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded from you. But you need to know this is not the original commission. 
Jesus goes, he puts it in his language for what was the original commission to the first person God calls to make a great name for himself, Abraham. All right? And and you you need to listen. There's this big thread through the Bible. And if you're taking perspectives with us on Wednesday night, you would have heard all this. And this is where it all comes in. And you need to realize it, because if you ever ask me, why do I exist on planet Earth? Why has God chosen me? Why has he called me his own? Why has he made me his child? All right? You will never have to ask that question again. And if you go to heaven one day and God says, and, you, and you're just like, God, I didn't know the answer, he's going to say, Mm-mm-mm. he's going to rewind, rewind all of human history back to this moment to you sitting right here and go, that Pastor Daniel, he told you and you were sleeping on his sermon, all right? So wake up. I don't want anybody to miss this on the test, okay? So, yeah, uh-huh. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, again, God likes changing names, right? So he was Abram and becomes Abraham. Look what he says. Abram. Now, Abram was a, was a pagan, heathen Philistine of the highest order, okay? He was not a follower of Yahweh in any way, shape, or form. He was not worshiping God. Yahweh comes to him, and he says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Okay, again, God and Abraham, they've never met. Again, very quick. It does not take a long time for someone to be a completely committed follower of Jesus. In the moment, he just says, You, Get up from where you are, leave everybody behind, and go where I will show you. Don't even tell you where we're going. Just start walking, all right? Just start walking. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So if you are taking notes, this is what you want to write down. I have been blessed to be a blessing. That is why you exist. That is why you are still breathing. It is why God has not yet called you home. For every moment that you have in this life, from now until Jesus calls you home, is to be a blessing to every single human being around you. Anyone in your organic spheres of influence, you have been blessed for the sole purpose to be a blessing to everyone around you. That's exactly what Jesus says in his own words in Matthew 28. It is what Jesus says to Saul that you will go to the Gentiles to make my name known. But let me just say, this goes all the way back to the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. The whole point of the creation mandate and the dominion mandate was for human beings was to go and to fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it with what? The glory of God. That is why we exist. It is our highest purpose. Now, you can do this as a student. You can do this as a medical professional, as a scientist, as an architect, as a construction worker, as a pizza worker, as a Wendy's worker, as a Publix worker, working for the government. Well, maybe not. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, You can do it for the government. And, uh, I mean, you can do it in any sphere. Uh, Election season's upon us, right? Uh, Please, Lord, have mercy on all us all. Um, yes, that was a total bad rabbit trail. You exist. You have been blessed to be a blessing. That is why you exist. 
if you are looking for purpose and meaning in your life, it is found right here. You have been saved with the intention of blessing those around you with the presence of Jesus, of you being the hands and feet of Jesus wherever you go. And the last conclusion is that no one is beyond salvation. So we talk about the sovereignty of God, how God weaves every moment of our life. It is no doubt in my mind that the sovereignty of God was well at play on Monday morning this week. So God knew I was going to preach this message, right? Yes, because I've actually been planning it for a few weeks. I even knew I was preaching this message. But I, when I first wake up in the morning, probably like the rest of you, grab my phone first thing, and I, I read on my phone for about 10 minutes. before It helps me wake up before I get up out of the bed. And usually when I hit the little Safari button on the bottom of my iPhone, whatever popped up in the lap before, it was there. And uh, I don't have Facebook as the app, but I have it right there on the Safari thing because I just don't like having the app for some reason because I'm old. And, you know, you can, even though I'm not, you can call me OK Boomer. I don't know why. But you can say that to me because <laughs> I got enough, I got enough gray, gray that I just don't want the app. I just do it online. But anyway, the very first thing that pops up in my news feed on Monday morning is my cousin who I never see on Facebook, never see online, haven't talked to, and I can't tell you however many years. And um, blown away that basically it's his entire conversion story. And I'll just tell you, if there's a modern-day Saul of Tarsus, it's my cousin. And, I mean, Fascinating. You know, this is one of those guys that he was too smart to go to school. And I know I say that in the room of a bunch of smart people. But he's one of the guys, you can hand him a physics book, he can read it, and he already understands it at a Ph.D. level, and though he never took a class. You can hand him a musical instrument, he can play it, having never played it before. He's just one of those guys. He went in the military, he blew the aptitude test off the charts, they put him in some high classified stuff, he learns languages in a week or two, can go and do all this. I mean, and he'll tell you. I loved Hitchens, I loved Dawkins, I loved Bill Maher. I loved nothing more than making fun of Christians all the time because they were idiots. And then my life was an absolute and utter, total disaster. And I just said, all right, if you're real, show it to me. Because I am desperate and I have made a mess of this whole thing. And he says, and at the end, he finally gets down, and he says, you know, God finally spoke to me in a way, and I completely surrender my life to him. And he says, I just want to thank all of you, all of you obnoxious, arrogant Christians who would not leave me alone. He said, I got a few Baptists to thank, a few, uh, a few Presbyterians to thank, and a few Lutherans along the way. You just kept praying for me, and you wouldn't leave me alone. You just kept inviting me and having discussions with me when I was as rude to you and as arrogant and toward you, and I thought horrible things about you. But you stood in the gap for me, and God has finally heard your prayers. There is no one beyond salvation. You may have great doubts about your one coming to faith in Jesus. But do you really think there is anything that can stand in the way of Jesus bringing that person into his saving grace?
If so, you don't know the power of Jesus. And so where we're going to go now as we make the turn to the end of our service is I'm going to go ahead and call the, the guys back up for the, for the last two songs. And these songs are strategically placed in this order that one, the, the, the first song is going to be an invitation to come. The second song is going to be an invitation to go. So here's what we're going to do, and, and I forgot to ask these guys beforehand, but Theo, if you'll be in the back, Stephen, if you'll stay in the back, Kevin, Jackie, if you'll come up here, Lee, if you'll come up here, um, Vinay, if you want to come up too, Spencer, you can come up. Um, we, if you are convicted about your sin and you want to follow Jesus, we would love for you to do that as well. We want you to come and talk and just let us pray over you this morning. But even if that's not you, you're like, no, I know I'm a follower of Jesus, but I want somebody to pray with me for my one. We want to pray with you for your one. And so during this time of communion, this song, just, just come up. And we just want to pray for your one. And let me tell you, how, and if you're like, oh, I ain't going up there, I ain't going to do that. But let me tell you how you can pray in your seat. We're just going to plead for the mercy of God. When we pray for our ones, here's how, let me just tell you how, how you should do it. You appeal to God's character. Say, God, are you not the one who saves? Are, are, are you not the one who saved in Proverbs that, that you hold the king's heart in your hand and you turn it wherever you want to? Is it not you who say, man makes his plan, but the Lord directs his steps? Are you not the God who calls himself merciful? Are you not the God who calls himself gracious? Are you not the God who has said that he would redeem a people like those who had faith like Abraham? God, would you please move in the heart and life of my one the way you saved Abraham, the way you saved Saul, and the way you saved me? God, we appeal to nothing but your mercy and your righteousness and your character. God, we are asking you to do what only you alone can do, and that is to take the stone of a human heart out of someone and give them a heart of flesh. That is the God we appeal to. That is the character and a mercy to which we appeal to as followers of Jesus. So as they begin to play, Throughout this first song, if you would like to be prayed for about following Jesus, we want to do that. We want to pray for your one, but you can also take communion. We're going to ask you to come down the middle and back up the sides in order to do so. So if you're going to pray, go ahead and come up here. You can go ahead and kill the lights. Um, um, and let's just spend this time in response to Jesus, praying for our ones and remembering his body and that was broken and his blood that was sacrificed on our behalf.